We've heard it before. Millennials are frivolous. They spend money on the things they don't need, and that's why they'll never be able to afford the things they want. Back in May 2017, I was pretty intrigued to see the term avocado toast trending. Remember that? It was all because of some comments made by a wealthy Australian property mogul named Tim Gurner. He went viral when he blamed the inability of millennials to purchase homes or get ahead in life at all on their love for overpriced avocado toast. He took heat on social media for the absurdity of his statement, but he found some fans too who thought he was speaking truth to millennial frivolity. However, as you can imagine, the supporting data found that it was a baseless claim. Millennials are no more freewheeling with their spending than other generations. I'm Asma Malik with the Atkinson Foundation, and as imprecise as the term is, I'm a millennial. I live in Toronto and I'm passionate about decent work. Hashtag avocado toast definitely struck a chord with me and has become a shorthand about the habits and aspirations of people like me. Cynics might suggest that millennials need to adjust their aspirations and not fritter away their income on quote-unquote indulgences. They might say that millennials need to compromise on the kind of work they do and the working conditions that they deserve. They shouldn't expect that it'll necessarily be decent. Them's the breaks, right? This is Avocado Toast, a podcast from the Atkinson Foundation. From researchers to activists to people who are living it, we want to build the movement towards decent work in all sectors. Millennial myths, prepare to be busted. In this episode, we're busting the myth that millennials can't have the things they want and the things they need. In July, Matt Gurney, a former National Post columnist who's now an on-air host at AM640, wrote a column for Global News. He suggested that millennials should move outside the city if they want to have houses. I spoke to Matt about avocado toast, changing cities, and what the future of decent work looks like to him. I want to start off by first asking you, uh, if you're familiar with the avocado toast reference when it comes to millennials. Yes, I am, largely because I hate avocados. So that it was a reference that was totally lost on me because I can't imagine why anyone would spend any money on that. The thinking behind it, the Tim Berner, the, the Australian quote-unquote property mogul, uh, when he did raise that issue that uh, millennials are for list, that's why they can't buy houses, did that idea resonate well, I mean, it, it struck me as stupid. I, mean, I think absolutely, probably, over the, the course of generations, people have chosen to spend their discretionary income on different things. And I mean, if you have no expectation of ever buying a home and no pressure to be saving up for a down payment, I mean, forget about even making the monthly mortgage payments, right? I mean, first you want to actually amass some raw capital to make that down payment. If you're not worried about that, why would you not indulge yourself on some of those luxuries. And I mean, hopefully you're, you're responsible enough to put some money aside into savings and hopefully you are finding housing accommodation of some kind, even if you're finding it on the rental market. But someone who, who is free from the, the need to accumulate the, the big whack of money the bank expects you to come knocking with, by all means, I mean, spend it on the avocado toast. And also, I mean, there's one of the arguments you often hear is, oh, well, if millennials are so poor, why do they all have smartphones and things like that? 
Well, look, if I was not saving up money for a down payment, I would be eating some non-disgusting equivalent to avocado toast, and I'd probably have a pretty good phone. I mean, I think millennials get a bad rap, but I also don't think the response to that is to, uh, to put them up on too high a pedestal either. In your article about millennials, you also acknowledge the privileges that you've been able to take advantage of. Mm-hmm. You said in that article, there are a lot of amazing places to live in this country, and they'll be glad to see young people moving in in response to the unaffordability of housing in Toronto. What happens to our cities when that's the, the advice that we give? Well, I mean, the, the city, I mean, just to say the blindingly obvious as a starting point for the answer is that the city changes. I think when you look around some of the big cities of the world, I'm thinking, for instance, of, of, a, of a London, of a Berlin, of a, certainly of a New York in the United States, if Toronto is heading in that direction, History has shown us a city can actually go a long time in that direction where common sense would tell you that no one can afford to live here anymore, and yet the city continues functioning just fine for the people who can actually afford to live there. And what about everyone else? Well, I mean, that's the question. And the problem is, I mean, a lot of the local affordability issues would be decided locally. I mean, if cities become playgrounds of the rich, as some people have said Toronto already is, then guess what? You'll have the Denzians of the rich playground who actually vote on the local municipal issues. So I want to ask you, when you hear the phrase decent work, what does what does that mean to you? What does it what does it make you think of? I mean obviously working conditions and not being in a dangerous environment or being harassed and being fairly compensated. You're not being ripped off by a corrupt manager or paid under the table. The thing that worries me the most, you know, we moved in two generations, my grandfather to me, from the notion of, of course you'll work in a stable job for the same company for your whole life, to today where no one my age has that expectation. And now I, I turn my eyes to my children who are quite young. They're five and they're three, so they've got a while before and they're, they're in the workplace. And I genuinely wonder, what are they going to do? That is where I start to worry. So dignity, you know, dignity in work, I think, at least has to be a reasonable expectation that there will be a chance for you to work. Because if my daughter, she's five, if she was a little older, and she, if she were to come to me and say, you know, what would be a safe job for me when I grow up? I honestly would not have the slightest idea. When people write think pieces about millennials, sometimes the last person you hear from is an actual millennial. So I brought producer Yasmin Maturin into the studio to chat about the documentary she made for CBC Radio's The Doc Project. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Asma. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. (laughs) So can we start off by uh, you sharing your name and what you do? Yeah, my name is Yasmin Maturin, and I am a freelance radio producer and filmmaker. I made a radio documentary project for The Doc Project, I think it's about a year ago now, and it was basically about me transitioning from finishing a master's program and going into the workforce. I felt like I was faking my way through having money when I didn't have money, and I felt like I had to do that. And it wasn't until I would speak to some of my friends, and even then I wouldn't tell them too much, that I would find out like, oh, this person is also struggling, so really this brunch place that we chose is actually 
too much for all of us but but for some reason we we have to we're convincing ourselves that we have to do this thing I just wanted to tell an honest story about where I'm at with that at some point in the radio doc I talk about the fact that I was at a new job and they were going to they were organizing a going away for somebody at the office and so you know they had uh, made reservations at a restaurant and so we all went and so when it came down to paying the bills I remember the whole day <laughs> I was kind of wrestling with with whether or not I should check or when can I have a window to just you know go on my phone and check my bo- mobile banking and make sure that I do have enough money um, but then there was never a good window because I felt like I had to be social I had to you know be up in the mix and get to know people because that's how you get to know people in your workplace and that window never came and so when when I when it came to pay my bills I decided, you know what? Instead of risking it and going into my my debit, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into my credit card. It got declined, but in my mind, the sound that the machine made was incredibly mortifying, uh, especially because I think I mean to me, I felt like everyone on the table heard it. It's always an anxiety-inducing thing to kind of almost be like publicly shamed into like, oh, ugh, like, sorry, you don't have you don't have money. Like it's just it's a, it's an it's an awkward thing like the sound of a declining card is is embarrassing and where are you now what are your finances looking like how are you feeling about them it has been a year since since that uh, that radio doc was made and the funny thing is is that I'm still precariously employed and I'm still trying to find work in my field but I do think that I've had a couple different you know career milestones that are kind of inching me slowly but surely closer to where I want to be but financially I'll get very honest and real like for the past couple of months I was kind of avoiding a lot of my student loans um, because I didn't know how I was going to pay them and I kind of had a moment uh, where I looked at the amount that I that I owed for all of the loans that I own it was a lot, and I think it's. And I had a freak out, <laughs> and I think I'm still in that place of trying to figure out how do I manage that because I don't like to burden, and I still to this day like feel like it's it's a burden to talk to my parents about the debt that I now have. I'm thankful that I have my roommates, and I did open up to them recently, and and they're also in the process of trying to find a financial advisor to kind of help them with their situation, and so I'm kind of hoping to just piggyback on that and get help. But I think the problem is that the shame that I that I have around money is still a thing I'm I'm struggling with, and like I've and I've actually actively tried to to find help and and for a while it's like when you get a contract you kind of live in the, at least for me, I live in this bubble of like okay now I know for like six months I'm actually okay I am paying my bills on time everything's good, and then the moment that runs out you're kind of back to the chase again and in terms of like you know, long-term planning of actually making a dent on your on your student loans or all these things, like, they f- it's it feels like something that I've never really been able to achieve, I think, till this day, to be very quite, like, to be very blunt. <laughs> and what's your, what's your hope? What would decent work look like to you? Some level of stability. When contracts don't come as often, the moment you get one, you kind of hang on to it for dear life. And, like, at least for me, that's been kind of my mindset. And I realized that you know, that does hold me back in terms of fighting for a better work situation. 
stability stability is 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 really the key and and feeling safe to actually talk to your employer about the conditions of your work so we're talking about millennial myths and the one that we're dealing with today is the myth of millennials are frivolous what do you think about that do you think that that has any truth to it i think it's complicated. I think it is and it's not. Living in the city is it's very expensive and and the work culture habits get built when you go for drinks, when when you go for brunch, when you meet people outside of work. And these things cost money. I think these are are real um work strategies that that end up hopefully helping you in the future but that's part of it right and and to me spending on these ways is not a, a, a frivolous way of spending it's literally you investing in yourself by doing these things and sometimes you don't you can't even afford to do that you hear it all the time like you know it's who you know and 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 how you know people is by is by building these networks and these relationships and going out for drinks going out for coffee and and you know all these things are part of the game and so to me that's that's not frivolity that's 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 just how things are now is like that's how you have to kind of spend your money to meet the right people and build those relationships that will get you your next gig. And and it's also, you know, people will talk about like dress for the job that you want. <laughs> and and it's a real thing. And granted, you know, you can kind of be frugal about how you do that, but I think that's still a cost that you have to 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 spend to be able to get to where you want because the moment that you don't look the part you know, especially if you're somebody who is racialized and you just add, you're adding something, a, a disqualifier already by not looking like the part that you want to get. Yeah, there's a lot of privilege associated with all of those aspects of, uh, you know, perceived uh, frivolity and really important to be able to speak about it and name it in a way that I don't think we get to all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where can people find you? At Yasby Grams. Uh, so at Y-A-Z-B-E-G-R-A-M-S. And that's on Twitter and on that's Instagram? That's on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, name it, all the social media. I'm I'm there. <laughs> We spoke with economist Armin Yelnesian about some of the financial realities millennials are dealing with. Armin is a leading voice in Canada's economic scene and a regular media commentator. For over a decade, she contributed to work on inequality as senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. She's not your typical economist, which is why we love her. As someone who immigrated to Canada very young, she saw the impact that economic realities have on the lives of families and communities. Armin studied the field as a mature student and has been driven by asking the tough questions of why things work the way they do. And we're pretty lucky for it. So thanks for being with us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Uh, This is very exciting for us and we're really honored. And I'm just going to start by asking you to tell us your full name, your title, and uh, where you're from. My name is is Armin Yalnazian, 
but I don't know what my full title is. I'm an economist at large. Does that work for you? Yeah, that's great. Okay. Is there a particular area um, of interest for you as an economist? Totally. I'm a labor market economist from way back. Okay, fantastic. And uh, and did you always want to be an economist? Oh, gosh, no. I never wanted to go to school after I finished high school. I hated high school so much I thought I could like get away with not going to more school. And then I found out that I couldn't. And when I went back to school, I was old enough to think, why does the world work the way it does? And why are economists as powerful as they are? And when I started taking courses, I still didn't get the answer to that. But I've got a perverse sense of humor, so I just kept taking more courses. So my very first job... I got as an economist was at the Social Planning Council, and uh, at least that was the first full-time job I got, rather than a contract position. And um, I remember just, uh, I was the first economist they'd ever had, and they'd been around since the 1930s. And I was hired in 1987, and they were dealing with the fallout from the 81-82 recession, as well as what was going on prior to that, which was the beginning of the deindustrialization of the Toronto economy. And that was that had huge gendered impacts, right? As men lost their jobs, and they were primarily not very educated and often immigrant men, they lost good paying jobs uh, with great benefits, and their wives would step up to the plate because they wouldn't take the job that was at minimum wage in retail, but the family needed to eat. That job was how I ended up being interested in inequality because that um, hemorrhaging of Monday to Friday, nine to five jobs in the wake of the 81-82 recession, which by the way was the deepest recession the Canadian labor market had experienced since the 1930s. So we hemorrhaged these traditional jobs, Monday to Friday, nine to five, stable, you know, not very exciting, but very stable. Uh, And in their wake, we created a bunch of what was the beginning of just-in-time labor, which was part-time labor. We won't use you for 40 hours a week. We'll only use you when we need you, and we don't need you for, uh, we need you kind of when when we need you. Don't call us, we'll call you. That's a great place for us to dive in uh, to, you know, one of the preoccupations that we've had uh, at Atkinson. We are interested in decent work and economies working for everyone. And particularly this year, uh, in our 75th year, we've been excavating the history of Canada's fight for decent work. Can you speak to some of the similarities and differences you see from then to now? Yeah, I guess in some respects we're still we're we're actually grappling with what's the social welfare state that we require for when people are struggling to take care of themselves and their families. And that was a conversation that was pretty live back then and we seem to be kind of looking at it from the ground up again. You know, what's the nature of work and so what are the holes we have to fill in around what is working? Are we looking at the social architecture, which is all these programs? Or are we looking at the nature of the work itself that is requiring some kind of backfill from uh, systems of support? And I think we're, um, we're more looking at social architecture and not enough at the work itself. And the work itself is changing very dramatically right now. And when you say social architecture, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean th- programs of income support, or programs that are essentially the social wage, whether that's affordable housing, childcare, or post-secondary education, or even systems like income supports like unemployment insurance benefits, or for some people, working income tax benefits. You know, things that make up for the fact that you're not getting paid enough. 
or regularly enough. So it's either through a system of redistributing income or it's through providing public services that minimize your need for income. So when your income goes up and down, you're not your your whole system of well-being doesn't also go up and down. You know, so if you have free public transit, which is something that's being put back on the books in Hamilton these days, which is kind of amazing. Uh, free public transit would mean whether you've got a job or you don't have a job, whether you've got a lot of money or not very much money this month, you can get from point A to point B. Social architecture is a very interesting uh, way of putting it, and I guess also interesting conversations that are raised in the kind of uh, demographic group and the experience of uh, a generation uh, that I'm a part of and that uh, we're talking about, which is millennials, right, and our expectations about uh, about work and about what we can expect from you know our social safety net, from a social architecture, from things that we also like to call social wages, and um, I want to ask you if you've heard about avocado toast when it comes to millennials. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what have you heard? <laughs> well, I know that the guy that raised it, the Australian property, uh, the, he, I think he's a multi-billionaire at this stage, um, and he's quite young, and believes that he's one of these people that, um, I think it was Barry Switzer that said, uh, who was a f- football coach, that said um, he's one of these people that think he hit a home run, but he was actually born on third base. Uh, his, his parents helped him buy his, as he put it, his first property, and he can't see why you can't do that too, and <laughs> just make a, a lot of money, and feels that the only reason why you're not a billionaire is because you're spending too much money on frivolities, and you, don't, you need to just suck it up and get along with it. Buttercup. If you'd been in the room when he'd made those comments, uh, what would you have, have said to him? How would you have responded? Well, I, I, I don't know that I would have said this to him, but when I heard that, it reminded me of actually starting at the Social Planning Council in the 1980s. And one of their the very first things they put out in 1933 was guides to family budgeting. We're talking about the heart of the Depression. And apparently the answer to the Depression is budget better. So, like, this is a conversation we've had fairly frequently as if it's your problem that you haven't figured how to budget your income rather than a problem of how what what kind of opportunities are available and how are those opportunities distributed. So he's had great opportunities, and I'm very happy for him, but those opportunities just don't exist for a lot of people. And not being aware of the differences in opportunities is one of those um, uh I think hallmarks of arrogance, whether you're rich or poor. To that point, he he went on to say, we're at a point, I'm quoting him, where the expectations of younger people are very, very high. They want to eat out every day. They want to travel to Europe every year. Uh, So kind of getting to your point about personal responsibility versus uh, what's happening in kind of the the broader uh, world and in the economy. And we know from from the research that we've done, it's well documented that millennials are overall more budget conscious than other generations. And actually, a Canadian labor force survey found that Canadians aged 25 to 39 actually take less vacations than boomers across all incomes. So there seems to be a disconnect between perception and reality. What's your perspective on the expectations on younger workers? Well, Two comments to what you've just said. First of all, you can always find an example of a person that is exactly as described that makes you just want to roll your eyes, right? So 
of course you're going to find examples of people that do feel entitled, whether they're in their 20s or 30s or 60s or 90s, right? People that just feel like the world should be the way they want the world to, to be. But the, the point you make about millennials or that age group uh, not taking as much in vacation and their expectations, their working opportunities, especially for younger uh, Canadians, are increasingly temporary. So we don't see overall in the labor market a growth in precariousness as measured by temporary tenured jobs like contract jobs and seasonal work and stuff like that. That's because my age group, and I'm in my 60s, has got longer tenure than ever before. Older workers have rarely had so little churn. So if you've got a job, you're not going anywhere right now. But uh, the shock troops of change are the younger workers and their permanent job opportunities uh, have fallen from three quarters of all job opportunities to two thirds just in the course of the last few years. Uh, more and more job opportunities being short term. What we know is that our labor force surveys and our survey of employment payroll and hours are two major surveys for understanding what is going on in the labor market. Don't capture what's going on in the digital economy at all. And the digital economy is increasingly a source for young people to get gigs paid gigs, but also is increasingly a source of employment and paid employment that is getting more and more competitive. So as the dig as digital platforms, which know no borders, right, it's truly a global labor market for most things. It's true that things like Uber, Airbnb, TaskRabbit, Foodora, those are all on-demand employment in a place, but increasingly crowd work like Crowdflower or Upwork or uh, Mechanical Turk takes place on a platform that is global in nature and you're competing with everybody. So the more people come onto that platform, the harder it is to get work. So one of the really interesting studies out of the uh, International Labor Organization, the ILO, did a survey of crowd workers um, about a year and a half ago. And what they found was that the average worker worked about 30 hours a week, of which 18 minutes out of the hour was spent in looking for work. So you're not getting a whole lot of money doing this. Now, it's true that a lot of people do this off the side of their desk when they already have a job, right? And so they're picking up extra money, which is kind of the notion of Uber, too. It's like that's not your full-time job like a taxi cab driver. It's like you do it when it's convenient for you, when it's flexible for you. But as you lose the other opportunities that are in the labor market, as those opportunities shrink, these become more and more important. You end up spending more and more time online looking for the work that everybody else is competing for and getting paid less and less. And work is getting unbundled to smaller and smaller tasks that are paid less and less. So it's a real uh, precarious setup that we don't know how to measure very well and explains a lot for why people aren't taking vacation. They're not getting paid enough. And you really, it's one of those, um, you know, Hotel California talks about you can check out, but you can never leave. It's one of those situations. You can check out, but you can never really leave that kind of a setup if that's how, uh, if that's your primary source of income. So. All of that is creating a lot more precarity in earnings and consequently less ability to save, less ability to pay down debt, less ability to prepare for your future, often less ability to either move out of your parents' place or move out of a cohabitation setup where you've got roommates, right? Very hard to find privacy. You know, that movie 
failure to launch, like, do you actually get out of your parents' house? Do you actually ever form a relationship? Once you've formed a relationship, can you actually ever move out and, and, and you know, create your own space just for the two of you? It, you know, a lot of people are choosing not to have children because of the, the economic pressures for other reasons as well. But fertility rates are dropping. And the fact that it's taking people longer to launch into their world of work means that it's, you know, expectations are declining in terms of what kind of incomes uh, they can look forward to. So lots more stressors in life. It's much easier for things to go really wrong. Uh, just one little thing going wrong can lead to a cascade of other, a whole lot of things. In other words, if you've got debt and you can't pay for that debt because your income is so precarious, you can spiral into a lot deeper amounts of debt. This level of precarity is really stressful. And we're talking about a whole cohort of people because the millennials are this like actually a larger cohort of the population now than seniors, right? There's more of them than seniors. So we're talking about a lot of people that are uh, getting uh, stressed out. So I guess the the last thing I'd say is what all of this is leading to is the beginning of a consciousness raising moment. So we're seeing little glimmers of people acting kind of like they did uh, 75 years ago and you know earlier um, and recognizing that if they don't organize, they're not going to be able to survive. That young people themselves are just starting to seize and understand that you know you could be as libertarian as you want, but at the end of the day, if you don't know how much money you're making from one month to the next, you can't even hang on to your apartment. You know, you can't sign a five-year lease. You're never going to get a five-year lease or a three-year lease. Uh, and so you're going to be at the whim of the market. And you need more stability than that. I'm beginning to see elements of a conversation that took place almost 100 years ago. This is very much a David and Goliath story. So if we get enough Davids, maybe we can turn this thing around. And how do you see that disruption happening? Well, I, I do think we're seeing the beginnings of it because people that are in their late 20s, early 30s are realizing I've been doing this now for two or three or four years. And, oh, look, it's not going to change unless I work with others to change it. Um, so part of it, sorry, is on the millennials to try and shape their own future and in the process, everybody's future. That sounds almost Pollyanna-ish because the new reality, the new digital reality is that work is easily unbundled uh, from jobs to tasks, which creates more precarity. And also that we are competing at a, a scale of a, a labor market a global labor market that we have never had to compete on before, not not to this degree. And it's reaching, instead of it being the manufacturing worker and the assembly line worker and outsourcing jobs, it's now about jobs can be performed anywhere, anytime, and it's not just so-called unskilled or lower-skilled workers. It goes right up to accountants and engineers and architects and lawyers, and those jobs can be done by anywhere, anytime if they're trained to work in the jurisdiction with the credentials that you need. And in fact, there's a lot of clients that don't care about your credentials. They just want the job designed or checked. If you want well-being in society, everything is predicated on a platform of full employment. That's why I became a labor economist, because paid and unpaid work 
is what shapes us as human beings. It's how we build relationship, meaning, and value every single day. That's why the labor market for me is more important than any other market, far more important than money, because it defines who we are as humans. Not, And I'm not fetishizing paid work here. I simply mean that the act of being human means the act of creation um, and recreation and procreation, frankly. So all of those forms of creation involve human endeavor, paid and unpaid. I see two things happening, really, going forward. One is you're probably less likely to own, but more likely to demand access. And so consequently, we're going to have to expand the stock of non-market-driven things, whether they're, whether it's mass transit or housing, uh, or social housing. Um, and childcare and all those other social wage things that we were talking about before. And I think uh, we're going to have to get very serious about what we mean about lifelong learning and make it much, a much more fluid and cheaper process. I want to just, I guess, as our final uh, question, I know we have to wrap up, but I do want to get back to the idea of frivolity that kind of helped uh, mm-hmm. kick off our, our conversation. What is the difference between Frivolous spending and discretionary spending. Well, that has a very specific meaning in economics, which mm-hmm. is the money that's left over after you've paid the basic bills. So your whatever your shelter costs are and I guess the utilities or the insurances that you pay for. And then anything left is you choose how much you're going to spend of that. But that's in the back in the good old days where people didn't have credit cards, you know, and like 0% financing for stuff that they probably couldn't afford. Uh, otherwise. So, I mean, the market is set up to encourage frivolity, and then you get these crooks. Did I say crooks out loud? Um, Then you get these moguls that tell us that we're being frivolous, and yet everything is about frivolity, especially in real estate, which is like, why do you need that much room? Like, why do we need granite counters? You know, is that frivolity? The definition of frivolity is in the eye of the beholder at some level. And at another level, it's all about they want you to lose your mind for a second and put that credit card number in, and they really don't care uh, whether you need it or not. So, But it, it's always been like that. Well, I shouldn't say always, but over the course of most of my life, it's been like that. It's like if they can get your money, they'll get it. You know? Thank you so much, Armin. Appreciate it. Avocado toast is a meme that has been played out to death. It's easier to tell millennials that they're frivolous and making bad choices than it is to address the real challenges they face. Student loans, consumer debt, precarious employment, the possibilities and pitfalls of a technological age. Millennials are dealing with a very different reality than past generations. We grew up against the backdrop of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. On the flip side, we're driven by purpose, values, trust, and authenticity. We're less likely to tolerate the inequities of the past, and we're finding and building communities to do something about it. Take a dash of optimism and a pinch of organizing spirit. Have your avocado toast any way you like it. Thanks for listening. On the next episode, we'll look at the myth of millennial engagement. If millennials are so apathetic, why are they leading movements for change? Avocado Toast is produced by Katie Jensen, with production assistance from Yasmin Maturin. It's hosted by me, Asma Malik. You can find our show notes at atkinsonfoundation.ca. 
slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at AtkinsonCF. Avocado Toast is the first podcast series on Atkinson's Just Work It platform for and by millennial workers. Thank you.